Hello, welcome to another interview on the Awakening to Purpose podcast. My name is Lou Redman, and I want to, before we jump into the podcast, just give a little heads up as to what to expect. Today, I have on Krista Hagman. Krista is a beautiful, gentle, nourishing soul. I say that to express her energy and the amount of work that she has done on herself is really felt. And I want to encourage you to take this podcast almost like it's a, a transmission to let yourself feel what shows up in your body as you listen to, because that's a big piece of what we explore using our body, how our body is a portal for our spiritual transformation. Krista is an expert and a wise teacher and someone who is just so deep in her path that you might not hear about her, um, but you might in the upcoming future for sure. She is, um, yeah, she has some deep wisdom. So that's all. I hope you enjoy today's episode and uh, we'll chat with you soon. I'll be friends. Welcome to another episode of the Awakening to Purpose podcast. My name is Lou Redman and today we have another interview guest and I'm so excited to speak to our guest Krista Hagman. Krista is an experienced yoga teacher, master combo practitioner, and holographic sound healer. Her approach to embodiment and energy medicine graciously integrates ancient and modern wisdom and shamanic techniques, which both captivates the mind and nurtures the spirit. Her offerings emphasize self-adoration and exploration, creativity, rhythmic living, improvisation, and curiosity. She believes the human experience is meant to be expressive, wild, playful, and steeped in reverence. Deep bows to that. Krista, welcome to the show. Thanks, Lou. Happy to be here hanging out with you. Yeah. So I've met Krista one time and I know when we hung out, I felt like we had a simpatico in different ways. I think your middle name is Luis too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we connected over the prayer of St. Francis, which I know was part of your matrimony ceremony. And so I don't know if I got to hear or remember hearing in this podcast is called, you know, awakening to purpose, but I always love hearing how does someone get on a spiritual path? Like sometimes people are just interested in it from their parents or from a young age. For me, it was kind of a very shift, uh, abrupt shift into it. And so I'd be curious how you, when you think of like the beginning of your quote unquote journey, where does that start? I think the, one of the initial like uh, turning points, if you will, was when I started practicing yoga. And I was 18, long time ago. Now it feels like, um, and it, it was a method. And I hadn't really had any experience of a methodology of something like a method to help connect with the self. And at 18, I'm not sure that I would have been able to 
uh, articulate it in the way that I have now since I've been practicing for more than 15 years. Um, but just the time and place. And I had an amazing teacher. Her name's Erin O'Brien uh, in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And I, I, I had experiences. So it wasn't like I was mentally contemplating something and then went to the library and wanted to know more about mysticism or uh, shamanism or spirituality like that. I, I liked going to the gym. I signed up for yoga and I felt calm and alert and focused while also feeling effervescent in my body. And I just kept going back and I took, it was like a twice a week yoga class at the rec center where I went to college and I took her class every semester that I went. So four and a half years, just same teacher. And I would like work my class schedule around being able to go to yoga. And now that I think about it, teaching yoga and movement, I was more studying that than I was like studying communications or whatever I got a major in. And the second part, they, they happened a couple things in college. I was a part of a, it was some type of communications class. I don't even remember the title, but we, we were tasked with going and exploring a group that we were interested in that we have never explored before. And I joined the Buddhist club at the university that I was at. And um, that also was a method of meditation and listening to Dharma talks. And at the time it had more things that I could read about because I wasn't really looking up yoga because I was doing yoga for me, like in my own time, as opposed to it was a class assignment with the Buddhist club where I went. And again, in starting to meditate, which my relationship to that has fluctuated wildly over the last 15 plus years. Um, I, I just, I felt good. And I think it was that experience, whether you're young or old to have something that's so simple, so to speak, but it made me feel good. Like it, I didn't need a lot of excess. It was actually doing less. And the part of doing less and shifting into a being state that I felt really good. So I continued with my pursuits of Buddhism and moved into a temple house that was in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and became the president of the Buddhist club and uh, just meditated more and more and learned more about the Dharmic path. And those two together gave me access to my body. And if I like my spiritual path is my body. And so I had those experiences um, at, at a ripe time in my life. Uh, and then like the cherry on top of it was when I first started to experience psychedelics in a 
non-party setting, uh, which from what I understand for a lot of people, that's not how a lot of people come into it. It can be like the party time. So I had this like beautiful um, soup or, you know, weaving of yoga for my body and mind, meditation for the clarity of my mind, and a few powerful psychedelic experiences that brought those all together and then extended that awareness to nature and my experience of being in the forest. And all of those are now some of the primary pillars of my spiritual path, also just my human path. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. There's so many threads that I want to pull from there, but let's go with something that you have a lot of experience in that I really only just experienced in beginning of the year, and that is my first psychedelic ceremony. And I had spoken about this on the podcast for anyone listening. You can catch it a few episodes back. It was, well, I guess I'm curious first, what was the first psychedelics that you were working with and anything else about those like initial experiences that weren't, let's say, recreational or party wise? Like what what were those the, the types of psychedelics and like what was like uh, maybe a, a one? Yeah, just speak any more to it that you'd feel called to speak to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, uh, how do I so much. ask the question? <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, trying to remember my, the order. I think it was in a short period of time in the winter, maybe within like two months or something, that I experienced LSD. And then like a month later, I think this was the order. Um, I ingested mushrooms. And I lived in Wisconsin in the winter and maybe like New Jersey in the winter, but it's not, it's not some people's favorite place or time of year to be as far as like the beauty of nature and the things that impacted me most that I remember that are still that are like still rippling in my daily experience are um, seeing like the stark contrast between kind of like a gray winter sky and the black curve tendrils of trees mm. and to be under or with within the sphere of influence of a psychedelic that that contrast it was it was like i saw i saw the bones of the trees and then throughout the year it's like they get dressed and the, you know their clothes are so beautiful and they change with the season just like fashion but i got to have this experience that was like seared into my like my my memory visually but also like my felt sense of seeing the skeleton of trees and they're everywhere 
and they're gorgeous. And I could uh, kind of got to have that fractal view of, you know, seeing then like leaves have um, the little spines and like the, I don't know, the, there's a term for it, but like the lines in leaves. And then there's the lines in tree branches and how it goes out. And so that was one that has really stuck with me of, um, I just, I feel like trees in winter and that contrast is totally stunning. And I'm really grateful for that because I think it can be easy to be like, ugh, a tree in winter is so boring, but it's like, it's bare, you know, and to see something bare um, in this raw state is really, uh, it's just stunning. It's totally stunning. And I also, I was like climbing a tree and found like a nice nook in a tree in, I think this was, I'm, I'm not, I can't remember specifically, but I know I started with mushrooms and, and LSD, but I ate a tangerine or a clementine or something like that. And I could see all like the little juice pockets, you know, there's like the slice of the citrus fruit. And then in that there's like the tiny juice pockets and all of the uh, fibrous material, you know, that you like peel away and, and I could see and experience that more. And there was like this like zest that sprung forth as I was peeling it and eating it and smelling it and the color and the color contrast again of like bright orange fruit with this like gray, deep winter background. Uh, so that experience of like contrast and how things really pop when there's like a contrasting experience. So those, those are the primary things that I remember that, you know, I still kind of revisit those experiences when I look at trees in winter or eat a clementine or anything like that. There's just like this wow to something that's so simple, but it's beautiful. Yeah. It's powerful how that still stays with you. And I'm, I think for me, I had a lot of fear and also an identity to overcome in a way because I had stopped drinking in 2015 and I took on this identity of, well, I'm sober. And so sober means no drugs. And so it's been an interesting renegotiation and, and looking at what actually sober means for me. And I still have fear. I know you're also very experienced in Iowa, sitting with ayahuasca, when did that come into the picture? Like, was it years after you've already had like previous experience or was it pretty shortly after that initial one? Um, my first actual sitting in ceremony was years after, like maybe close to 10 years later. Uh, but there, the idea of ayahuasca had started to like kind of flicker in and reading books and getting more interested in things and meeting friends who had sat in ceremony and things like that. Um, but as far as my own personal experience, <clears throat> it was, yeah, maybe nine, nine or 10 years after I had first experienced psychedelics. And I, I, I had had a kind of a long 
break. I was not like a common user, um, I would say, of any type of psychedelic. And what ayahuasca brought for me was that specific ceremonial container. Like Mm -hmm. I had taken mushrooms with friends and maybe we'd like go hiking in the woods or play around. Um, Or maybe with a partner, we would have a ceremony, but we were kind of just making up what it meant to be in a ceremony, which is also totally valid and a very beautiful and important experience. Uh, But I, I guess the defining factor and difference was with ayahuasca, I was being served by somebody else, like someone who has a lot of experience, uh, is trained in holding space for that experience. And that's very different than, you know, like drinking some mushroom tea and like going to dance a festival or go play on the jungle gym at like the friend's house next door or whatever. And I have yet to really have a ceremonial experience with either LSD or mushrooms. And my general experience of psychedelics is like, like they kind of have become a more integral part of my everyday life, not the ingestion of them, but that experience, like that perception shift and the teachings that I have gleamed most predominantly from ayahuasca because I've, I've drank a lot more ayahuasca than I have eaten or consumed mushrooms or LSD. Yeah. I, I had, I mean, me and Kelly, we, I mean, Kelly and I, we, I mean, she kind of ran it how um, she knows and how I know you, how you guys kind of hold the ceremony in some ways, at least we, she modeled it after that. And it was, it was really, she, I know she, felt like she couldn't let go because there wasn't anyone really holding the space. And so there mm-hmm. wasn't like someone that was actually guiding it. I would love to do it with someone guiding it. I was able to really surrender into it. I think I was breath work has prepared me somewhat for the terrain and I felt very ready for it. I literally years of, of reading and studying. And like, I, I was always interested because I had some spiritual mystical experiences without anything. And so I was always so curious when I was hearing stories about these experiences. So I read everything. However, I had so much fear and I knew that I wanted to start with mushrooms because I've heard like, that's a good place to start rather than mm-hmm. jumping into, into ayahuasca without any experience. I'd be curious from your point, because I think something I always heard was like feeling that call, like almost like it's calling you. And I, I felt like I definitely got to that point with, with at least exploring mushrooms and yeah, I guess what, what do you say to people? Cause it's very popular now in some ways, what do you say to people who are, haven't done ayahuasca or haven't done any psychedelics and are like, contemplating it like do you have any guidelines thoughts because i think it could be really helpful for myself to hear and also anyone listening who might be contemplating because you hear about this in you know spiritual circles and whatnot yeah oh hmm. well the thing that stands out to me the most is the concept of set and setting if you read about or heard about yep. that um so Being in an environment where before you ingest anything, you feel safe. 
Um, Because a lot of, from what I experience and understand of these compounds, these medicines, is they can open things. So if you're like in just an environment that just doesn't allow your body and your nervous system to relax, to open into a setting where you don't feel safe and relaxed, I would 100% not do that. That is... Um, avoid doing that. <clears throat> and I think it can go different ways depending on the substance. If people are interested in exploring casually, I'll say, like like by themselves or with a friend or two, rather than say uh, going to Peru or going to like sit with a shaman. Um, I had really great experiences sitting with friends, but I, my, the first handful of experiences were just me and one other person as you and Kelly did. And so I would say from that, like starting small, like maybe don't go to a festival with 40,000 people and ingest a substance that you have no idea what will do to your psyche. um, And you don't know, like just what the help is and support is. So set and setting, starting small, starting small, even possibly with the amount ingested, like just like, you know, if you haven't had cake in a while, like don't eat a whole cake, like just start with a little bit and you can always circle back around another time. Other thing, I think there's a lot to be said too for preparation as far as um, even like eating clean, um, considering like the media that one is consuming or surrounded by for like the several days to a week or so before. So like it doesn't, in my system, it doesn't excite me when I'm not like a, like a violent movie person at anyway, but to kind of have the residue of something like that, or even the news in your system. And then again, to open your psyche to kind of a hyper state, that doesn't seem like a a good combination. Um, And if it feels right, then actually going to the step of sitting in a space with a, a trained person, like, and making sure that you trust and feel safe with that person, asking them questions like, what's your philosophy around serving psychedelics and what does ceremony mean to you? Uh, What's your experience level? Um, If something goes wrong, if I don't feel good, how do I know? Just asking some of those critical questions of someone. Um, I have only really experienced ayahuasca in a ceremonial setting. And so I don't, I cannot speak to like an informal use of ayahuasca, um, but I think with other substances like acid or mushrooms, I sat in informal settings, but they, you know, they were like at a cabin in the woods with a partner and we knew we were going to go outside. We had soup prepared for after. So making sure that you're uh, your transition back or your come down, so to speak, also has tea and blankets and the things like your um, 
you know, kids sleep with a stuffed animal, like having your proverbial stuffed animal so that you can navigate as best as possible if something goes not according to plan. Um, And then maybe the final thing I would say is, and I'm sure you can attest to this, having some sort of centering practice, like to prepare you for the experience. So whether that's meditation or a form of breath work, uh, but something so that you have familiarity with a tool like that, like slow, deep breathing. So if things, because if no one's ever taken a psychedelic and they do, inevitably something that they have not experienced before is going to happen. And so to have a centering practice where, whoa, like this is, this is totally new. This is out of this world. Like, how do I come back to my, my proverbial teddy bear, my deep breath, my, the sense of my body uh, to navigate? Cause I don't, I, I'm sure people have bad trips, but I think it's more so that there's like a, the, the whole situation is not conducive for them to navigate possible difficult truths. That can be what's hard. So if the situation is set up that's safe and there's some like shadowy material that one needs to look at that it's like, I have my breath, I have tools that I can go through um, to get the most out of the experience. Beautiful. Thanks. That's really helpful and clear. And that's definitely something we had on New Year's Eve, which was felt really safe and I did have some shadowy things come up and I was able to work through them and was grateful to have that opportunity to work through them. It was really powerful. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned movement being your path or excuse me, your body has been your path. And I'm sure movement's been a part of that. Like we all have bodies. Some of us feel more connected to our bodies than others. How when did that realization come and and how have you used movement to deepen into yourself and your own practice? Mm-hmm. And maybe it was obviously taking that first yoga class and going, going and doing that, which is a very physical practice, but yeah, maybe also like speaking more on what you mean when you say your body has been like your your mm-hmm. practice or your path. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll throw in that I'm I'm not an expert on being a human yet, so <laughs> <laughs> figuring it out as I go. Um, my body as the path is for me. There is uh, an intelligence in my body that is more ancient than my conceptual mind. And so then for me, the path is to, and it is a hard path, (laughs) is to continue to let like my, my body be the guide, like the leader, so to speak, rather than the analytical, logical, conceptual mind. And even like a very simple uh, example of that would be 
being able to distinguish cues of hunger or thirst. And if I have a cue that my body is ready to be supported by greater nutrients so it can continue to be in the world. But I have this idea in my head that like, well, I don't eat at X time. That would be a incongruency between my the messages of my body and the thoughts of my mind that say like, this is how it's done. This is what's better. Um, another easy example is like tiredness. And both of these are really big, uh, challenging parts in the modern world where, you know, from when we wake up to when we go to sleep, we should be doing the whole time. And even within that doing looks like this or progress is this or that whole uh, what the overculture has as what it means to be successful is progress is doing. And my body doesn't agree with that uh, story. And so recognizing cues of fatigue, and it doesn't mean that I have to go down and go and sleep, but it could be moving from a um, forward moving progress, kind of like a gas pedal, you know, movement type of experience to one of being quote unquote idle or just being more receptive, um, being not having to be the one who's doing the thing in life. And what, so that, that's like my highest contemplation. And I use movement as the tool on that path. Because when I, one of the best ways that I have learned to feel my body is by moving my body. And, you know, it's like, um, if I was going to do bicep curls with weights, I would really have like the visceral kinesthetic experience of this is what these muscles, they're efforting like that, uh, it requires something of my body. And then I actually can feel the sensation of that. That is also more accessible, I think, to most people. And that's more how I started with athletics and things. Then if I'm just laying on the couch and I'm like, what, how do I feel my biceps? It's, it's, it's harder because they're not involved in something, um, the muscle fibers and the tendons and everything. So movement helps me feel and then feeling as a guiding force rather than thinking that's like the practice, that's the path. So that's how they work together. I hope that's clear. Yeah, I think that's a very simple and practical example that anyone can be like, oh, yeah, why do I not eat when I'm hungry? And then you have me, like, I feel like I maybe, I love feeling ravenous hunger and like then satiating like a ravenous hunger. It's, I tend to be extremes in that, in, in many ways in life. <laughs> um, and so I know you 
in your bio, you, you, there's something that stuck out even as I was reading it today of like the, the rhythms of or the, like rhythmic. And obviously food is one of those things. So um, it sounds like you let you let your own natural body rhythms inform how you go about your day or do you have more structured plans or is it a mix of both? Um, yeah, excellent question. Um, I would say a mix of both and ironically, the structure has helped me break the way outdated structures that I inherited from my culture, my society, family, et cetera. And, and then the free flowingness, like I have been pretty blessed in most of my adult life to, you know, I don't have a nine to five job and I, I don't want one. (laughs) That would be, that would be like a a structure that I would consent to. That's like external, that then I have to try to work myself around um, where for me, the, the quote unquote structure that I follow was, I kind of came to it after a period of what I'll call research and research in the sense of just observing myself. And predominantly for me, this is in regards to being in a female body where my hormonal cycle shifts every week. And then there's a monthly uh, flow to that when I have my bleed time and ovulation. And just after a couple of years of observing the shifts in my energy, I had, um, I had like a hypothesis. Oh, well, I kind of feel this way and then it shifts and shifts. So now I kind of know that rhythm and then I have to apply, I do my best to apply the structure of that rhythm which I learned through observation to help keep me centered in a world that wants me to be the same every day. And I'm not, I don't think anybody is, but um, for, for me, it's particular around my hormonal cycle. And so that's like both structure and non-structure or some of the cues like, you know, when I just start to feel kind of like, well, I'm like, I haven't been outside in a while, you know, like I'll just go for a walk. And so again, some of those cues of the body saying, um, I'm feeling caged. Like I need something. I need freshness in some way. So it's, it's a little bit of, you know, the like spontaneous and also a sense of how I can kind of keep structure or boundaries around my life so that I don't get overtaken by the culture's agenda. It's helpful to be around other people who give themselves permission to not also go on that nine to five, even though I'm don't have a nine to five, but I tend to, feel like I need to work nine to five Monday through Friday. And just the past few months, I've really been letting myself 
be okay not forcing things and letting myself rest. And I say that, and I'm going to sound like I, I do it more than I I'm saying it. Like there's, but but there's been a noticeable difference, and so I'm taking it in in the mini strides that I'm finding rather than trying to completely go a hundred percent in a way that it does feel uncomfortable for me because for me for so long when I wasn't actually making a living doing this work, it was I needed to make a living. And that was such a big focus where I felt like I needed to spend every second of the time. And I know that that's not actually helpful. I know it has no nothing to do with the amount of time you spend, but it's hard to break out of years of that pattern of figuring things out. So it's, yeah, I, I appreciate people like you and other people that really embody it and more so even speak about it and like make it, yeah, make it more of a, of a conversation that's not necessarily being had. How can movement or how, how do you see movement or teach movement in the ways that you do, which I know has evolved over the years. So you're welcome to speak from you know, yoga teaching, which I, I'm sure people listening uh, are some yoga teachers out there and to like how you bring movement now, how, how has it evolved? And, you know, in lieu of the, the podcast name, how can it help someone tap in to a greater purpose or a, a greater part of themselves? Um, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> is the shadows, is this weird? Or is it's okay? totally, it's cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. <laughs> okay. I'm like, well, the sun. <laughs> <worked>. um, <clears throat> how I, so I, in teaching movement, I started the teaching part. I started with yoga, which I had a, a yoga practice for several years before I started teaching. Interestingly to me, I started dancing way before I did like tiny tots dance and ballet and jazz and middle school and modern and the whole years almost I wouldn't be surprised if it was like shortly after I started walking, I started dancing. But it's more recent to me to actually be teaching dance. So that is like the, the order of events is really mm -hmm. interesting. And so from movement, as far as guiding other people um, through yoga, and how I was teaching, it was much more uh, sequential. This happens, then this happens, then this happens. And it had like a, there was a, a method, big fan of methods. Um, there was a method to it. And I really can have a very detailed approach to yoga. Like, I don't want you to just strike this pose. I want us to grow into the posture through various ways that the body is relating to itself and to the ground. But it has um, a very, I would say, there's a part of me that thinks there's a right way to do a yoga posture. Because I've seen people get hurt and injured by not doing that way. And 
what has shifted for me in the last, uh, I don't know, two, three years is I've been teaching a lot more freeform movement or dance. And I am incredibly inspired by improvisation. And so going from like, we start this way and then we do this thing and we end with this to improvisation and free form movement, having more of a blossoming experience that's very personal for each person. And so I'm, I'm no longer like you put this foot here and, you know, you put your arm like this. It's a little bit more imagery. Like what would it feel like to feel something in the room that stands out to you? What if you like related to that object and then you let that feeling bring life or movement into your body? And that's, that's like one way that, or predominant way that my, my teaching guiding of people have, has kind of evolved over time. Um, And I also have, I have a lot more understanding and experience for the power of sacred space and my personal relationship to the the unseen energies that support my life is much stronger than it used to be. So when I guide movement, it's like a it's a ceremony of some sort. And I liked to approach yoga like that, but it it was a little drier, so to speak, for me. It, I'm very anatomical, anatomically focused in yoga. Um, which is just very interesting because I think the human body is the most fascinating thing in the whole universe. Um, but as far as freeform movement, it's again, it's not like put your foot here. It's like what is connecting to the divine feel like for you? And is there a way in which really connecting and feeling connected, does it elicit? something in your body. So tying that into finding purpose, and this is something I still work with, is like purpose isn't necessarily like the job title that's on my business card. It's, It's my purpose is to connect with God. And I can do that in a lot of different ways. And as as long as I honor how I connect, then I'm living my purpose. And I feel very called and inspired to uh, hold space for other people to also feel their own connection. And when there's a group of people who are all connected to the one, the big one, (laughs) then feel like it's just the most deeply nourishing experience for the soul. And perhaps also my purpose is to just be in nourishment in the variety of ways that I find that for myself. 
Mm. Beautifully said. And I feel pretty insimpatico. I don't know why I'm like using that word today. <laughs> in in that being the North Star in many ways. And that kind of that takes care of everything else. That <laughs> <laughs> takes care of anything that you're gonna be doing. And you'll feel like you're living your purpose if if you're if that's if that's where you're starting and acting from. And it, and it sounds like you the way that you approach movement and teaching and guiding is is kind of lean more into artistry than I don't want to say it's a science, but then more structure. And that's not to say that you can't have an art history in a classic yoga class where you're cueing everything, but it's um it's 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 also sounds like a practice in letting go of needing to know how it's going to go out or needing it to look a certain way which i know can be really really powerful what have you learned as far as yoga teaching like and again i know there's probably going to be some yoga teachers listening to this what can be helpful to think about as far as making making it in the world as a yoga teacher um and i know we're all at different like levels of what that means but like how have you navigated yoga as a business and maybe even like how you look at that now um and and yeah things that have come up for you or things that you might feel are supportive or we could just talk about exploring <laughs> that 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 journey <laughs> I'll go for the exploring part. <laughs> I'm working on the making it part. <laughs> um, but what I can speak to that I found has been really helpful for me is um, to not try to be anybody else. Like not try to teach how someone else teaches even if it's someone that really inspires you so, so, so much. And also that not every, you are not every student's teacher. Like mm. it's just kind of that some people love this style and some people love that style. And sure we could benefit from, you know, what's different than what our go-to is. Um, but that some people will just not be into it and not be into what you do. And that's totally fine. That has nothing to do with if you're doing it well or right. There's just preferences. Um, and to never stop having a personal practice. Like I, I've been, there have been times in my life where I taught many classes a week and I had to like scale back because I couldn't, I didn't have enough time for my personal practice because um, for me and the teacher, so much of what makes a great teacher is that that person is embodying what they know. It, it is just seeping out of them and they're speaking from their experience. And so if you, if one like kind of loses the commitment to the discovery of their own experience, then the teaching will probably get a little boring and kind of dry. It won't have that heart or that passion. 
Um, so, was, and continuing to learn a hundred percent, like find teachers you love and also experience things that are new and different and how they inspire you and, and find the angle maybe that you really, really love. Um, like for some people, it's more the yoga philosophy, or maybe it's Ayurveda, or it's like fun sequences that, you know, are really creative or they're difficult. Some people it's the music. And for me, it was, it's, uh, I guess I'll use a bud word, a buzzword. It's very somatic experience. And it's like, there's a lot of imagery in the way that I teach. So it elicits a feeling. Um, and I also teach pretty simple, but like strong because I have found a lot of benefit of feeling strong in my body and how that supports my experience in the world of like finding confidence and self-worth. So like being on the edge of like muscles burning a little and slow and steady and strong that it, it helps me really focus like focus my mind so yeah just continue to do do and share what you love and that is so hard sometimes yeah but that I think that's what I would say yeah all of that can be applied to not just yoga and really whatever you're creating a lot of that can be applied and recognizing that not everyone is for you and that's that's a good thing that's a great thing so who are you learning from nowadays who are your teachers or what books are you reading take whatever whatever path that feels inspiring or relevant yeah um my teacher, her name is Karen Mescal Bannon. She just moved back to Massachusetts and she is fantastic. And I have learned so much from her uh, as far as yoga goes. And then I'll give a shout out to Erin O'Brien, who was my first yoga teacher, who uh, was just so kind, like so kind. Because I just came back from this workshop in Buffalo, I will 100% give a shout out to Chris Aiken, who's not a yoga teacher. Um, he teaches at Smith, I think it's Smith University, but he teaches choreography, composition, improvisation, and contact improvisation. And uh, totally other subject matter, I guess, but... Um, Improvisation and specifically contact improvisation as a dance form is, it just lights me up. It's the most fascinating, amazing practice to me. And I also signed up for an online workshop with Bonnie Bainbridge Cohen, who is the founder of Body Mind Centering. And um, she's just been doing this work for like so 65 years or something. She's amazing. And all of those, what I'm most inspired by, I'm just, I was like, couldn't stop thinking about improvisation after this workshop. Um, and one of the things I love about improv 
is how good it is at showing me when I'm being habitual and when I'm in a patterned kind of autopilot space. And it's like being knocked upside the head when I realize that and I can uh, shake myself out. And in improv, when I discover something I've never done and I've moved in my body a lot. And when I do something I've never done, it is like fireworks. It's just so fascinating. And it brings me out of my mind completely. So those are those are my, my top people at the moment, both like uh, the lineage historically uh, and body yoga, my teacher, Karen Mascal Bannon. She's just so incredibly good at what she does. And she's been teaching and practicing for like 35 years. Um, the books I'm reading, <clears throat> well, it's funny. Um, I'm not a very religious person, but I chose to give up something for Lent as a way of uh seeing how difficult it was and what I could learn about myself <laughs> doing that. Yeah. And uh I I tend to gear towards I'm calling them brainy books, something I can learn, and I just really love that. Um and I found myself kind of almost gorging on knowledge. And I wasn't giving myself enough time to kind of let it like simmer in a little bit more. Um, so I gave up brainy books for Lent. Um, and I'm reading fiction, which is totally new to me. <laughs> Fantasy fiction. And the book, that book that I'm reading right now is called Throne of Glass. And it's fantasy. It takes place in like a whole nother world. And there's, you know, it, it has me um, like imagining things that are not of this world rather than learning about things that are of this world. Uh, so that's what I'm reading. I'm also pretty excited for Lent to be over so I can go back. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, so the fun. Yeah, although the, the the book that I'm excited that I I am, Michael and I, my husband, we're definitely book people, and it can be uh, a little silly how many books that we love to have. Um, but the book I'm excited to read when Lent is over is about ritual by Maladoma Somme, who is a African medicine man, African shaman, um, and I'm really excited to learn more and experience more about the power of ritual and sacred space for, I think it's an essential part of human DNA. And so that's what will happen in a few weeks. <laughs> While we're on books, is there like one that's like really, I know there's probably, I know there's a tough question. Is there a book that like you look back on at a certain time that was like, this was pivotal for me. Um, I know it can be a hard question to, to decipher one, but maybe just not having it to be the number one, but just mm -hmm. a book that pops up. I read, it was one of the best books I've ever read. And it's called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess by Leonard Schlein. And he was a surgeon. I can't remember what type of surgeon. 
who went to Crete, a small island on the south of Greece, and saw all these beautiful temples that were in honor of the goddess. They were holy places for pilgrims and for people acknowledging their relationship to the goddess. And he was like, what happened to that? That was literally his question. And then he, it's just, he's an incredible writer. It's amazingly researched. And it talks about how the transition from oral traditions to written word. And then within that, um, the alphabet as we know it is also linear. And it goes left to right. And so he ties in how consuming information in that way shaped our brains and that evolved into patriarchy and the acknowledgement of one male God who rules above all and kind of breaks down how there's a deeply long, long, long history of not having such a separate view, like that God is separate from me, which is, which is how like the belief is now. Um, so it's one of the best books I've ever read. I would recommend it was life-changing and just getting that, the clarity of that um, thesis, so to speak, that like reading shaping my brain and leading to a, a separate mode of perception. Sounds fascinating. Um, is there anything else you want to explore or talk about that you were maybe hoping to talk about um, coming on? And if not, maybe it's what's exciting you now, I know, and, and what's kind of coming up for you and anything you want to promote or share with, uh, with the audience. Yeah. I'll share the things that are exciting and coming up. Um, I'm teaching at Sedona Yoga Festival um, in Arizona, which is at the end of April. And so if anyone has never been to Sedona, I 100% recommend that you go. It is totally gorgeous and otherworldly. And there's some really uh, top quality teachers and musicians and everything that they go there. And if people want to come into the forest, I'll be in Malala with Wild Within for the May retreat and bringing some new inspiration to movement that I'm exploring there. <clears throat> and if anyone goes to my website, which is freeingbodies.com, don't be deterred because I'm rebuilding it at the moment. So it looks undone, which is because it is. and. I think I would just encourage and invite people to, to move. Particularly one way that I've found to how to start, because that can be really broad, like move what? Like go to the gym, bike, Zumba, I don't know, whatever. And um you have enough open floor space to just lay on the ground and explore what it feels like to be a body on the ground. 
and the weight of the body and the force of gravity and the feelings when we let go of the mind as the decider of what the body needs to do and instead um, let the body be the leader and the guide and the breath as a way to return to the body and just see what happens. Amen. Move your bodies. And I think I think you have an opportunity too in the fall if people want to move their bodies with you, right? They're... Yes. Thank you for that. Well, we'll talk another time because you got to experience Kelly while she was experiencing elemental embodiment. Um, and in the fall, through the support of Wild Within and your lovely lady, Kelly, um, we're doing elemental embodiment again. And it was really profound. It's over Zoom. It translated beautifully over Zoom. Um, energy knows no time or distance. So sacred space is really created through intention. That's what I learned. And so if people are interested in exploring their relationship to nature and the elements through prayer and dance and movement and breath, um, and come on down and join me and Kelly for elemental embodiment. It, it was, it was totally spectacular. It was the first time I've done anything like that. And I had rave reviews and I had an excellent time and I would love to share it over and over and over again with whomever is interested. Yeah. So if you want some more of Krista's nourishment, I'm sure you can feel it just listening to her energy and her voice and, I think you can follow Krista on Instagram at freeing bodies. Yeah. Um, at freeing bodies underscore underscore. I have the underscore too, bastards. And uh, if you want to stay tuned with what's coming up for her in that one specific program, if you go to the wildwithin.org and sign up for the newsletter, that's a good place to learn about that, which is my partner, my fiance, Kelly's company. In case you were wondering like Lou, who is this, who is this group? So Thanks so much, Krista, for joining and uh, and sharing some of your wisdom and your gifts with us today. It is a pleasure. Thank you for letting me talk about what I love. Yay. <laughs> All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Awakening to Purpose podcast. I do not take your attention for granted. So thank you for spending the time. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps get the podcast out to more people. And I'd also love to hear what you think and what you're getting out of it. So please leave a review. Let me know. And to stay connected with upcoming articles and posts and all the things that I have going on, check out my website, louredmond.com. Sign up for my newsletter. You can do so right in the show notes. And that's the best way that we can stay in touch. You'll get insights on how to live 
more meaningful life. You'll get ideas on spirituality that can be applied directly to your life, how to bring more presence and awareness into your life, and also how to develop more confidence. And there should also be in the show notes a link to get your guide on unshakable confidence. It's a it's a PDF guide and it breaks down some of my best tools that can help you really shift your perspective so you can bring more trust into your life. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. I'll beat my drum for you. I'll sing my song for you. I clap my hands to the beat that transforms into Music you heard is a song called Nova by River Roots. Thank you so much for listening.